We have a teenaged widow forced into seclusion, waiting to see if she carries the heir to the French throne. If there is no child, she's back on the marriage market for another loveless political match, a fate that she is desperate to avoid. But how does she control her own fate when her brother is England's notorious Henry VIII? Welcome to this episode of Paris Gone By, the Parisian history podcast for the curious traveler. I'm Michelle, your host and guide to the Paris of the past. Today, in honor of the grand reopening at last of the Cluny Museum, or the Musée National de Moyen-Âge, or the Medieval History Museum, we go back to that late medieval period of aging kings, dynastic troubles, and a plucky young princess who's going to go her own way. The Hôtel de Cluny Museum is one of the last standing private medieval buildings in Paris, and it's one of my favorite places in the city. In the last episode, I espoused my love of the 18th century, but that love has a rival, and it is the medieval period. It's like me having to choose between Bach and Mozart or cookies and cake. I just can't do it. But I digress. Even though the interior of the Cluny has been altered and restored extensively over the centuries, the ability to be inside a private mansion, not a palace or a castle or a cathedral, from the Middle Ages, in the middle of Paris, no less, always blows my mind, to say nothing of those amazing unicorn tapestries, and we'll get to those in a minute. So, of course, I had to do something for the full reopening of the museum after many years of restoration and expansion work. When I started my research, I realized that I had an opportunity to bring together my love of the Clooney, French history, and Tudor history in one incredible story. How did the Tudors factor into all of this? Well, let's find out. Back in 1514, the young King Henry VIII of England, he's only 23, still virile and handsome, and he's only been king for about five years, has decided to switch alliances from the Holy Roman Empire to France. This is something very common at the time for all of the major players in Europe to do. We're friends today, enemies tomorrow, frenemies the day after that. To seal this new deal, he's offered up his beautiful 18-year-old sister Mary. This is not the other Mary Tudor, Henry's daughter, who would become known to history as Bloody Mary. Our Mary has a different fate. She's been contracted to marry the 52-year-old king of France, Louis XII. The only thing he has going for him is that he's in poor health and advanced years, and there's a good chance the marriage may be mercifully short. Mary, deeply unhappy at the prospect of her nuptials, makes her brother Henry promise that if she survives this marriage, she can marry whom she wishes on the flip side. Henry agrees to this condition, but Henry being Henry, we have to take his promises with a grain of salt. It does seem that it was understood at the time, either implicitly or explicitly, that her preferred second groom would be Henry's BFF, and unfortunately professional womanizer, Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. But first, she has to actually get on with that first marriage. 
After a marriage by proxy in England, Mary, along with her giant retinue and all of the goods that made up her impressive dowry, were off to France. The dowry was supposedly valued at about 200,000 crowns, or if I've done the math right, about 33 million British pounds in 2017, the most recent year of conversion on the British National Archives site. Basically, Henry spared no expense on his baby sister's wedding. After a nauseating channel crossing, she was lucky to survive. One ship actually sank, taking 400 souls with it. She was finally wed to her geriatric bridegroom on October 9th, 1514, in Abbeville, France. Louis was smitten with his young, charming wife, so much so that the day after the wedding night, he relapsed into an episode of gout. Mary did dutifully nurse him through this. Louis's appreciation for Mary included giving her a number of jewels and other valuables in return for her ministrations. These included gigantic diamonds, rubies, and pearls that awed even the English nobles in her group. After 82 days of feasting, dancing, jousting, and playing nursemaid, the marriage ended abruptly on January 1st, 1515. Louis XII died at the Hotel de Tournelle, which is on the location of the modern-day Place de Vosges. He died supposedly from enjoying his new bride to excess, but most likely he succumbed to his existing ailments and not from exertions in the boudoir. Francois, Count d'Anglom, Duc de Valois, and since the previous year, Dauphin of France, thanks to his marriage to Louis's daughter Claude, who also happened to be Francois's cousin, became Francois Premier, King of France. Louis had risked his health on marrying Mary Tudor because he had no sons from his previous two marriages. Through the complicated lines of French inheritance, Francois was the closest male heir. At one point, he had been the long shot, but now he was the new King of France, with one little tiny asterisk. If After such exertions, Mary proved to be pregnant. Everything would be in limbo until the child was born, and it was known if the baby was a boy, who would then become the real new king, or if it was a girl, who would be relegated to the marriage market in due time under the watchful eye of the king, who would also be her half-brother-in-law and cousin. These family trees look like toddler crayon scribbles, you know, there's no straight lines in these. Francois and his ministers, eager to avoid any tomfoolery on the part of Mary, who may have been inspired to take a lover in order to foist a false heir onto the throne and gain power as mother of the king and possibly a regent. She was forced into six weeks of seclusion at the home of the abbot of the monastic order of Cluny, which is now, of course, our modern-day museum. Cluny was the largest and most wealthy of the religious houses at the time. They had monasteries throughout Europe, and they were extraordinarily powerful. They also had a university in Paris to train the novitiates, or the new members of the order. That university was on lands that would eventually belong or become the Sorbonne, which is just south of the Hotel de Cluny, if you think about your Parisian geography. This would have been a home of luxurious comfort. It was only about 15 years old and was built to the exacting tastes of the previous abbot of Cluny, Jacques d'Amboise, who's an interesting character in his own right. Quick aside, his 
father fought with uh, Joan of Arc, and his grandfather was killed at Agincourt, so a very noteworthy family for sure. The house itself included private rooms, reception spaces, and a pretty little chapel, plus gardens. At this point in our story, there was a new abbot who had just come in, who I believe was a nephew of Jacques, the man who built the building. Got to keep it in the family. For Mary's stay, her usual English attendance, which included possibly Anne Boleyn, her sister Mary Boleyn, or both, were temporarily dismissed in favor of French attendants who would not permit any hanky-panky on the former queen's part. Well, that plan, however, did not quite work out. First, putative King Francois, who had already expressed deep admiration for Mary, was having some confused feelings about what should be done with his beautiful former stepmother-in-law, According to letters from Mary and later her future husband, Charles Brandon, Francois made his interest in her charms quite clear, much to the alarm of pretty much everyone else. Mary just wanted to go home and marry Charles. Charles, who had been sent by Henry to fetch his sister back to England, wanted to go home and marry Mary. Francois's ministers did not want him to create the exact scenario that they were trying to avoid, and there was this small matter that he was already married to the pregnant again Claude. Finally, Francois realized that maybe he should dial it down a little bit for the sake of his own crown and asked Mary what she truly wanted. She, of course, said she wanted Charles and asked for Francois's help in finding her true happiness. Francois, kneeling before her in one of those beautiful rooms of the Cluny, put his hands in hers in a symbol of fealty and vowed that he would do whatever he could. Always the gallant prince, that one. And thus began a flurry of letter writing across the channel between Mary, Charles, and Francois in France, and Henry, and then Archbishop, but soon Cardinal Wolsey, back in England, At stake was Mary's future, and more importantly for Henry and Francois, the return of her huge dowry, you know, 33 million pounds plus in today's money. It was touch and go, and as the weeks went by and Mary's seclusion was set to end, she began to get desperate. Rumors were swirling that she was set to be betrothed to one of several high-ranking European nobles. Henry was playing a game of hardball over the terms of her return, choosing fortune over his sister's happiness. She was a valuable pawn, and either Henry or Francois could choose to marry her off for their advantage. With the negotiations unsettled, she was in a legal limbo between the two monarchs. Mary had to act quickly and decisively. According to her own letters, she gave Charles an ultimatum. Marry me within four days or we're done. You're never going to touch this. She apparently also burst into tears, which swayed Charles to act according to his own letter. Other things also probably helped persuade him, including her extensive French dower lands that she could keep until her death. These were part of the marriage contract, lands she would keep in France. Also her status as the king's sister, and of course the charms of her person, The humanist Erasmus had stated nature had never formed anything more beautiful than Mary Tudor. 
She was an incredible prize in every sense, and Charles was not going to let that get away from him. In late February or early March, the date is disputed, the Dowager Queen of France and former Princess of England became the Duchess of Suffolk. They were married in that little jewel box of a chapel at Cluny, illicitly and without the permission of Henry. In fact, this is in direct contravention of Henry's order to Suffolk to not marry his sister until Henry had given the green light. Not smart to anger Henry VIII. Presumably, they spent their wedding night there at Cluny. It is unclear where they were located following their marriage. They did stay in Paris. I don't know if they stayed at the Cluny or, given the circumstances, they were forced to find other accommodation. While they were still in Paris, Francois did insist that they marry again in front of legitimate witnesses. He seems to have decided that if he couldn't have her, then it was to France's advantage to have such a valuable English pawn removed from the European chessboard. But now they had to take on Henry. He seems to have been more angry about Charles's deception and vow-breaking than being actually shocked at the event itself. Of course, it seems to have already been kind of understood between everyone. Even more letters went back and forth across the channel. Mary was presumed safe. Henry wouldn't execute his beloved sister. Well, at least this early in his reign. Give it time. Charles had no such assurances, however. Finally, Henry did, with some help from the pro-Charles Cardinal Wolsey, decide to assuage his anger by demanding huge sums of money, of course, and an ongoing annuity from the couple. By May, just a few months after their illicit marriage, they had married for a third time, this time on English soil. Interestingly, it seems in the end, very few of those fines were ever paid by the lucky couple. Mary and Charles would end up having four children, including a daughter, Frances, who was in turn the mother of the unlucky Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen of England. Mary unfortunately died quite young, at the age of 37, from an unknown illness. Whatever she had expected from her marriage, she and Charles ended up spending large amounts of time apart as Charles focused on his relationship with the king. In her last years, Mary also avoided court life, both out of her ongoing illnesses and out of a profound dislike for her brother's new obsession with Anne Boleyn. Charles and Henry, in the end, would be the only two to survive the Boleyn affair. In yet another Clooney connection, some historians believe that the lady in the Lady and the Unicorn Tapestries is Mary Tudor herself. Like so many things with those mysterious and alluring tapestries, this is a supposition, but it's not guaranteed. If this is true, I want to know how that went down. Did she sit for the artist? Did the designer just use a likeness of her? Did she even know these tapestries were a thing, that they were being created? And are we in fact staring into the face of Mary as we stand in the location of her most daring acts? Despite such a brief sojourn in France, Mary Tudor managed to wed one king, drive the next king to impure distraction, and defy a third king's wishes in order to marry the duke that she longed for. Sort of sounds like a Bridgerton season. At least a third of her time in France was spent at the Cluny, 
desperately and yet skillfully managing to escape the usual fate for a young princess at that time and creating her own future. As you wander through the museum next time, think of Mary and her Charles and Francois playing very high-stakes games with her future within those walls, and imagine their marriage in that beautiful little chapel. Was that marriage attended by Anne Boleyn? We don't know for sure, but it adds an additional frisson to think of what would become of them all. We don't always get the opportunity to know exactly what happened within these smaller historic sites, what was said or what was done, all of the human foibles that become part of the fabric of a place. But in this case, we do. And that's an incredible gift to be able to name the ghosts that we feel just on the edge of our senses. It's incredible for me. If your sole desire is to see the Clooney and its treasures, including the tapestries, the museum is now back open. They even now have a cafe inside. It is covered by the Museum Pass, or you can purchase tickets on the website. Do check the site for any current restrictions. As of this recording, a timed entry reservation is not required, but you do need to choose the date if you buy a ticket. However, things, of course, change quickly. Check the show notes for links uh, to those sites. Thank you again for joining along on Mary Tudor's unique story and this quick look at the Clooney Museum. To go deeper into this episode, read the blog, and explore more resources, please check out the website at parisgoneby.com. And if you loved what you heard, please do subscribe or leave a comment. It really does help bring PGB to the masses. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day. I'll be on till.